I'm JG Michael, and this is Parallax Views. I wrote The Big Balloon, a love story, a memoir collage during quarantine. My legs swelled up at the computer. I took pictures of objects in my house. Each image inspired a wormhole of chain-linked recall. It's funny, disturbing, and scary honest. The chapters are just rooms in my house. Ryan Walsh, author of Astral Weeks, A Secret History of 1968, said this. Berlin populates his writing with memories that will break your heart and wisdom tossed off as one-liners. Walk through his house, flip on the lights room by room, see what he has left there for you and all of us. All of my bands, Orchestra Luna through the Nickel and Dime Band, find a place here. But there's a deeper cut into my non-musical queer life and those I've loved. Friends, family, portraits, and weird observations. Part Andy Rooney, part David Sedaris, part Proust. A stretch. You can read about it on my website, berlinrick.com. You can buy this beast of a book on Amazon, Bookshop, Barnes & Noble. Thank you. Hey there, Parallax News listeners. On this edition of the program, we've got a double feature. Later on in the show, we'll be talking with Stephen Semler of the Security Policy Reform Institute to discuss the $778 billion defense budget. But first, we're going to be joined by the legend... Jim Loeb, who's reporting on the neocons and the lead-up to the Iraq war, was just, uh, uh, chef's kiss, some of the best we got in the era of the Bush presidency. And he'll be speaking with us about foreign policy in the United States today, as well as his recent piece in Responsible Statecraft the official publication of the Quincy Institute, dealing with the Houthi hysteria at the Wall Street Journal. Or, put another way, the Wall Street Journal shilling for the Saudis. But before we get to that, I'd like to tell you about one of our sponsors. If you're in the California area and looking for holistic therapy, you can do no better than Alexander Yu, who specializes in helping clients work through grief, trauma, PTSD, LGBTIQ and gender issues, marriage and relationship counseling, even spiritual exploration, since Alexander is a reverend as well as a therapist. His approach is welcoming and all-embracing, regardless of your spiritual path or beliefs, So, if you're looking for someone to suit your therapy needs in the state of California, you can do no better than Alexander Yu, marriage and family therapist, California license number 102886. You can reach Alexander at therapy at alexanderyoo.com or by calling or texting 323-834-834. 9828. Again, the number is 323-834-9828. If you're looking for great holistic therapy, 
and you're living in the California area, please consider contacting Alexander Yu. And with all that out of the way, let's get right to the conversation with Jim Loeb. Hello, this is Mike Swanson, and in a few moments, you're going to listen to another segment of Parallax Views. But before you do that, let me tell you about my new book, Why the Vietnam War. It's a sequel to my previous book called The War State, which has lots of positive reviews and Amazon's been out for years. But this one is a more detailed case study of how American Empire National Security State operate using Vietnam. And I believe it shows also how things work today, how policy is actually made and why. So grab the book on Amazon.com, Why the Vietnam War. Welcome to Parallax Views, a guest that I'm very happy to have on. I've been reading his work since my teenage years during uh, the Bush presidency. Uh, Jim Loeb of uh, Responsible Statecraft and formerly the Loeb Log and Interpress Service. How are you doing today? I'm fine, but I should make clear I don't speak for any of those except for maybe Loeb Log. Right, right. Well, you're a contributor to Responsible Statecraft. That's true. So what I wanted to have you on about was this piece that the Wall Street Journal came out with, two pieces actually um, recently, one by uh, Karen Elliott House, who's written a whole book about Saudi Arabia. I think her piece was entitled America Needs Saudi Self-Defense. And then there was another piece uh, that the editorial board wrote uh, talking about the need to defend Saudi Arabia against the Houthis. And uh, you sort of dealt with this in your piece at Responsible Statecraft, Houthi hysteria breaks out at the Wall Street Journal. Uh, What is happening and why is the Wall Street Journal so quick to defend the kingdom of Saudi Arabia and what it is doing in Yemen? Well, I can't I can't speak to their motivation because I've never worked for them. Um, uh, But generally speaking, they're very well, I, I don't know what the particular affection they have for Saudi Arabia is. I, I assume that Saudi Arabia is good for business, whether it's um, in oil uh, and other energy resources, or whether it's arms sales, especially arms sales. And I'm sure that there are people uh, who are, are very interested in the Wall Street Journal who, who sell arms. But generally speaking, they also uh, follow a uh, a foreign policy line that's quite consistent with the Likud party of Israel. And the Likud party at the moment, at, well, and, and uh, we could say the institutional Israel lobby in the United States are trying very hard to woo Saudi Arabia and see Saudi Arabia as very important in uh, opposing um, Israel, uh, sorry, excuse me, in opposing Iran, um, they would very much like Saudi Arabia to join the Abraham Accords along with the UAE and Bahrain. Um, And so um, consistent with that position, uh, I think they, they consider Saudi Arabia fundamentally an ally uh, and so the editorial board is very pro-Saudi. And well, that they're anti-Iran because they see 
the Houthis as a proxy for Iran, or at least that's how they depict them. I don't think that's an accurate uh, description. Um, and uh, and pursuant to their kind of Likudist worldview, they're very, very anti-Iran. So then when it comes to that sort of Likudist worldview, how did we get to this point where that's uh, sort of the, the viewpoint that's been adopted? Well, I mean, I mean, I, it's a pretty longstanding. <laughs> it dates back to the first Likud government, which took power in Israel in 1977, I think. Um, the, the Wall Street Journal has adopted a more or less neoconservative worldview. And um, most neoconservatives um, have, over the last 40 years, been supportive of the Likud party and its general outlook uh, or world worldview. Um, and I think the journal's been pretty consistent in that respect. Um, uh, despite changes in ownership, I would say. But the editorial page has been very pro-Likud, very pro-Israel, even pro-greater Israel. They've never been critical of the settlements and so on. And that, to me, seems to shine a lot of light on why, you know, in these articles, we hear constant mention of the uh, Iranian-backed uh, Houthis. And, and as you note in the article, Responsible Statecraft, um, that's it's not completely untrue, but it's also greatly exaggerated. Well, I think among Yemen experts, I mean, people who actually know the region and know the country uh, and know more or less how power works in Yemen and particularly in North Yemen, which is the, the stronghold of the Houthis. Um, uh, I think the view is that Yes, Iran has helped out, particularly since 2015, when the Saudis began their air war uh, against the Houthis. Um, but that the Houthis are not proxies of Iran. Um, they don't do what Iran asked them to do. In fact, in 2015, I believe the, the Iranian position to the Houthis was don't take over Sana'a, the capital of Yemen, uh, because it's too provocative. And the Houthis took it over anyway. Um, I think probably the Houthis have become somewhat more dependent on Iran, but I still think the relationship is a lot more complicated than what's depicted certainly in the Wall Street Journal and probably in most mainstream media, although most mainstream media often includes a caveat or at least sometimes includes the caveat that they that they aren't uh, it isn't a proxy relationship. I think too that the real disturbing thing about those Wall Street Journal op-eds was the you know the, the inability to really speak about you know the, the the other side of this, which is you know it's the, the yeah, blockade I, against Yemen's uh, Yemen is terrible. Yeah, I mean. I, I mean, it, to me, it's journalistic malpractice, and one would expect much more from Karen Elliott House in particular, who, who, who isn't as, who hasn't historically been so 
Likudist in in uh, in uh, her perspective. Uh, it was very surprising to me that she wouldn't even mention what the Houthis and what Houthi controlled civilians, uh, Houthi controlled territory, the civilians in Houthi controlled territory have suffered uh, over the last six years during the Saudi campaign against them uh, because it's completely disproportionate and not even to mention uh, the Saudi role in bringing real devastation, what the UN has called the world's worst humanitarian crisis on Yemen, not to mention that is is journalistically, I, I, I mean, just stunning given what uh, uh, her prominence in, in journalism, especially in journalism about the Middle East, it's, uh, it's very hard to believe that she wouldn't have even given a nod to the disproportionate nature of the suffering in Yemen vis-a-vis -vis the supposed Houthi aggression against Saudi Arabia. I mean, yeah. it, it was just a very, very unbalanced, very, very biased uh, account that she gave. And um, I think it's a low in her very distinct, otherwise very distinguished career. I was just going to add to that. I, I think, too, uh, when it comes to the UN, it's so interesting to me. I, I feel like that's also something that hasn't always been brought up enough is it, it seems like there were attempts uh, to sort of shut down uh, UN investigation into what Saudi Arabia has been doing in Yemen and the humanitarian crisis there. Yeah, it was just two weeks before that. Uh, well, maybe it was a month. Can't remember now. That the Saudis, uh, you know, prevented the Human Rights Council. And there was a report just a few days before these, these editorial or this editorial in the op-ed came out uh, in, I think it was the Intercept, but I'm not sure, you know, about the lengths to which Saudi Arabia had gone in lobbying against the continuation of the UN Human Rights Committee's expert committee or expert task force on war crimes in Yemen. Um, they went to great lengths to shut down that investigation, including threatening Indonesia with not permitting its citizens to, to do the Hajj to Mecca if, uh, if Indonesia didn't vote uh, the way the Saudis wanted. So yeah, this, uh, and of course, neither the editorial in the journal nor Karen Elliott House made any reference to that whatsoever. I think too, what really gets lost in all of this is, and I think you point this out in the article, you know, if, uh, if you really wanted to protect the, the poor Saudis, uh, maybe it might be time for Riyadh to lift the blockade and stop the bombing. Um, yeah, I mean, that's an obvious, uh, uh, I mean, at one point, House suggested that the threat against Saudi, posed by the Houthis against Saudi Arabia was existential in nature, which, again, is, is just, I mean, unbelievable. And, uh, but if she's so worried about, you know, the Saudis um, being threatened by this tribe in 
in northeast Yemen. The, the uh, Saudis Yemen. who have what uh, like a a pretty expansive military budget compared to Yemen. yeah, it's about sixty billion dollars a year. Um, and they buy more arms than any other country outside the, uh, well, in the what we call the developing world or what used to be called the third world. They, they I mean, they're, for the last 40 years, they've bought far, far more. I mean, many times more than the next biggest buyer. Yeah, uh, the notion that they're so threatened by, by this Houthi insurgency, again, it's just a total lack of, of proportion. I, I like it how you mentioned... raise questions about why we sell so many arms aside from making money, why we sell so many arms to Saudi Arabia when it feels it can't really defend itself. I, I actually want to get into that. I, I don't know if you have um, any thoughts on that that you wanted to share. No, I just want, well, actually I would go back and I'd say the Houthis have said publicly that they will, they are prepared to essentially engage in a ceasefire um, and enter into negotiations, provided the Saudis stop the bombing and stop um, and halt the blockade. Um, and there's no particular reason to think that they wouldn't follow through on that commitment um, when the United Arab Emirates, uh, they posed a similar challenge to the United Arab Emirates, which was the Saudi's uh, junior partner in the campaign against the Houthis starting in 2015. After the Houthis made those conditions clear to the UAE, the UAE did effectively withdraw from, uh, from the coalition. It, it's still involved in Yemen, but more in the South than uh, against the Houthis. And um, the Houthis stopped all attacks on on the UAE, on on UAE forces in Yemen and uh, on UAE territory, which they didn't do that much to anyway. But I think it probably demonstrated that the Saudis could stop the Houthi aggression if they wished to by stopping their own. I like what you say too in the article. You know, the, the bombing runs are very expensive. You know, those Patriot missiles cost more than $3 million a pop. Uh, cost well, effectiveness they want, they should the appeal plea, to the journal's readers. Go on. The journal's plea was, was that the United States provide Patriot missiles, which the United right. States withdrew back in September for redeployment, presumably to the Indo Pacific. Um, uh, so that, and that's what they said. And the Saudis have asked the Americans to provide Patriot missiles against Houthi drones and, and missiles. That was the urgent message conveyed by the journal in both pieces. So before we wrap up, um, you know, it's, it's interesting how the ghosts of the past come up in uh, the things we talk about today. I know Ahmad Chalabi comes up in your piece at Responsible Statecraft. Have we, been sort of repeating the mistakes of, uh, you know, the Iraq war era, or are things starting to change in some way? I mean, I, I feel like you've really provided some of the best commentary on how a lot of the, the different factions within foreign policy thought think about these issues and, and how there's, I think, a sort of mentality that 
well, simply put that, that there's a distrust of restraint affair, that it's isolationist um, and a sort of mentality that uh, we always have to be doing something because, you know, the Munich 1930s could happen all over again. Do you think that's still the sort of dominant view in D.C.? Well, I wouldn't say that the dominant view in D.C. is that Munich is just around or, or Hitler is just around the corner. I think that's the view of people like Bibi Netanyahu and right wing sectors among or hardline neoconservatives. But uh, I, I think neoconservatives are have become to some extent increasingly. Well, I mean, they're involved in the foreign policy debate. But they're not nearly, I think, as influential as they once were. They were under under Trump, um, and they were certainly in the first term, uh, in Bush's first term. But uh, I think they've split pretty badly. I, their intellectual leadership, I think. Well, yeah, I mean, I mean, it's like when you look at um, Robert Kagan. I mean, Kagan has even been critical of Israel over uh, Egypt and Al Sisi. So. That that's true, but Kagan, Kagan, I think, is a is a I've called him a, a renegade, a neocon right, renegade. Right. But they're they're very divided over Donald Trump, and um, I think Trump, in some ways, kind of crippled the the neocons as a kind of coherent political force within the United States. Um, you know, they're still very generally very kind of pro-Israel, but um, I think some of them, well, there was definitely a revolt against Trump and, uh, and there was a revolt, I think, against Bibi Netanyahu too, among more moderate neoconservatives, people like Kagan, like Bill Kristol, like Max Boot, um, some of some of those. Um, even you know, Brett Stevens is still very, very Likudist in orientation, but he 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 feared he loathes and and fears Donald Trump and what Donald Trump has done to U.S. politics. And he may feel kind of the same way about Netanyahu in, in Israel. I'm not sure he hasn't written about it recently. And frankly, I don't follow them as, as closely as I did in large part because I don't think they're nearly they're not as, as relevant as now. they were. Yeah. But I mean, in, in a general sense, I would say liberal interventionists, of which there are many in Washington, and neoconservatives um, are, are, do see um, the 1930s as, and America's failure in their view to uh, be sufficiently on guard against Hitler and engaged regarding Hitler's rise. And the fact that the United States in their view played a heroic role in World War II in ending the threat of Nazism and then winning the Cold War against communism, that that is a, kind of, that is a, a reigning view in Washington, generally speaking, that yeah, I'm States, sorry if I was a, a bit crude in how I said it uh, initially, the you know, Munich 1930s, that's not, I, I think you're describing it better than I did. Well, I think, you know, they, they agree that the United States is a force for good in the world. And it, therefore, the United States should be engaged in the world. Liberal inter interventionists prefer 
more multilateral engagement, but they'll go unilateral if necessary. And neoconservatives tend to be prefer unilateralist engagement. And then there are people on the right in this country uh, who are more Jacksonian in orientation. And if somebody gets, you know, in tries to humiliate the United States or otherwise offend us, you know, they should be crushed. And would that's you place, very, uh, do you think Trump was sort of in that Jacksonian tradition? Yeah, I, I, would, I, would about call, I would call Trump a Jacksonian basically. So, and, and so the, that, that group, which I think is a significant political constituency will ally with anyone who wants to go out and, and slay monsters abroad, as John Quincy Adams might have said, if they feel sufficiently provoked. So, but again, I think there's also general recognition, even among liberal interventionists and certainly liberal internationalists, because you, I think you can make a distinction between them, that the United States overreached in the Middle East, that the Middle East was largely a disaster for the United States, a strategic disaster, and that um, the United States has to be more careful about how it expends its military and, and related resources. And that could require some retrenchment, if not restraint, uh, as a, which is a buzzword. I think there's a general acceptance of that notion, despite the fact that the US Congress, including many, many Democrats, just voted for an increase in the defense budget over that which Biden had requested. So um, they, I, I guess there, there is a very large constituency who continues to believe that the United States should be the preeminent, dominant military power in the world. Do you think, I'm just curious, do you think some of that may be um, generational in some ways or what do you think drives that? Uh, because I, I'm beginning to wonder if, uh, the generation that grew up during the 9-11 wars may end up having a different, a more restrained, restrainist view than older folks. I, I don't know if you want to comment on that. You know, I think there's, there's polling that suggests that, that, that people who are aged between 18 and 29, at least, and maybe 35, you know, are differ with their older compatriots in important ways on foreign policy as well as domestic policy, for example, you know, on gender related issues and race related issues and so on. But at the same time, I think the idea that the United States should be the preeminent military power is still very powerful across generations. I think it's probably less in the youngest um, sector, but uh, I think it's still there. And it's just, it's a form of, of reassurance. I mean, I mean, I, there are many reasons for this, um, including like kind of systematic glorification of the U.S. military or since, well, even before 9-11. Um, but also, I think it's probably affects you know, how the rest of the world is depicted in mainstream media. Um, and that is to say, the rest of the world is depicted in a very threatening sort of way. I mean, if it, the old expression, if it bleeds, it leads, um, remains true today, especially in mainstream media. And so 
the way the rest of the world, especially the developing world, is conveyed to the United to to U.S. viewers of U, of television and to somewhat lesser extent readers of print media, is it's a very threatening world. <laughs> and so the idea that you would want a big military, just like so many people seem to be happy with a big police force, uh, is pretty compelling. Uh, so I think the media deserves a lot of the blame, blame or credit for <clears throat> this desire for security, physical security and this concern that if you don't, if we're not number one, somehow we're very vulnerable to bad people. So before we wrap up, um, the, the last thing I wanted to mention, you mentioned how there's significant overlap between, say, uh, liberal interventionists and neocons, but there's also uh, differences. And I, sometimes when discussing foreign policy, I think people miss that there are these subtle differences at work uh, between uh, different factions of the, the sort of foreign policy makers in this country. Uh, is there anything that you think people really need to grasp when it comes to those differences? Because I, I feel like, you know, it, it's easy to lump everyone in the, the same sort of box, but there are these differences that matter. Well, yeah, I, I, <laughs> I mean, I talk about neoconservatives generally because that's kind of what has most interested me in my professional work. Um, partly because like many of them, I'm Jewish and belong to a similar generation as to some of their intellectual leaders. So I find them very interesting. Um, but yeah, uh, I think people, I, I spent about 35 years in Washington DC and I strongly believe that people outside of Washington DC don't appreciate to what extent, um, or they don't appreciate the importance, not only of differences between different foreign policy tendencies like neoconservatives versus liberal internationalists versus liberal interventionists versus Jacksonians versus the Wall Street establishment, but also um, the importance of uh, specific individuals occupying specific positions and what differences they can make and their own particular, I don't know, eccentricities or um, their, only, their particular likes and dislikes. I mean, you, you, you do learn that, yes, there are huge forces out there that are shaping, in a sense, the, the envelope of US foreign policy, what is, what is possible to contemplate in terms of change or differences in US foreign policy. These forces, these larger forces, such as you know, arm, the arms industry, they're very, very important, but also specific individuals in specific places at specific times can exert great influence, uh, particularly in parts of the world that we that don't necessarily, are not necessarily at the top of the foreign policy agenda. Are there any figures like that in particular that you think are, are worth considering in that regard? I mean, I I think you're right because I, I've found characters like um, 
Zbigniew Brzezinski personally interesting with uh, all his eccentricities and uh, the ways in which he differed from other people in the foreign policy establishment, but also overlapped with them. But are there any uh, figures that you think are worth thinking about in, in regards to what you, you just said? Well, I mean, you know, just one example. I mean, I, I mean, because I, I've been away from Washington for four years now and really enjoy the fact that I'm so far away. I, I've heard that I from haven't. a lot of people that have moved out of Washington. <laughs> yeah. I haven't thought about that question so much, but if you take somebody like um, Thomas Pickering, who was um, among many, who's probably the most decorated and influential diplomat of his generation, that is the generation that today is like about 80 years old. I mean, he, he was supremely competent and he made a huge difference, for example, when he was ambassador to El Salvador during the civil war there, because he really didn't like what he saw and what was going on. And uh, he was really determined to um, try to change that, make various people who were doing death squad work kind of pay for their sins. Um, and the result was a definite had definite impact, but I mean, that's fairly minor. I mean, but Pickering, for example, overall, really did bring out the, really uh, did demonstrate how diplomacy uh, can, can achieve results. When he was at the UN ambassador um, for the United States uh, up to and during the Gulf, uh, the first Gulf War, I mean, I think he exerted tremendous influence and showed how diplomacy can work. Um, so that's in a, in a more general sense. And, you know, in more specific circumstances, you know, I think it can matter a great deal who's the ambassador to a specific country um, and how well they can establish relationships with uh, the, those, that country's leaders and how persuasive they can be uh, in trying to steer those leaders in a certain direction, both for good and for ill. You take somebody else um, like uh, Otto Reich, um, who was, uh, oh, he was head of the Office of Public Diplomacy for Latin America in the 1980s. And, uh, and I think he was assistant secretary for inter-American affairs or Western hemisphere affairs, depending on what it was called in the nineties, late nineties. And he, he, he exerted a lot of influence in ways that I felt were very disturbing. And he, I mean, he, he would, he would take initiatives without consulting with his bosses, you know, in favor of, well, let's, for example, cite a, a coup in Haiti against uh, Aristide. Uh, um, th those things can make big differences, uh, particularly in places in which they take a special interest. I wanted to comment real quickly on something you said earlier as well. You noted how, you know, even amongst internationalists in D.C., th there is sort of a recognition that, that maybe mistakes were made with regards to our policies in the Middle East. And I, I think that's very true, especially uh, when we look at figures like Francis Fukuyama or even Brzezinski when he was alive, 
um, promoting the work of uh, Trita Parsi at, at Quincy. So I, I think there is a recognition and that's invaluable. Do you think there is going to be, I, I mean, I want to think that there's going to be a sea change in foreign policy in the U.S., but I'm, I'm also told by um, some of my by, uh, older guests that I'm, I'm a bit too young to be, uh, that I'm too young and I'm too optimistic about that. Um, Andrew Basevich has said that to me before, but I, I'm curious, what's your feel on that? Do you think there's going to be changes or, or not? You know, I don't know. I, I, I don't feel competent really to take on such a big question um, in part because I am so distant. I mean, like I don't even read the Washington Post much these days. So, and there's a lot of insight in the post. Um, and I, I kind of miss that, except I don't really miss it anymore. <laughs> you know, you just got, a, I mean, look at it this way for a second. It seems like we're not going to get a build back better program for one point nine billion dollars at this point. It's also the, the or uh, one point nine trillion dollars. But we are getting a defense budget this year that's around seven hundred eighty billion dollars, which means that. That's two and a half. Well, the, and the one point nine billion dollars was for over a trillion rather was for over. 10 years. Well, if you take the the Pentagon budget over 10 years, you're going to be in the neighborhood of, at this point, probably $8 trillion. And what are we getting it? What are we getting in return? I mean, we've shown that we can't win wars in Iraq, can't win wars in Afghanistan. We, the latest New York Times investigation piece about drones saying, you know, found that we wreaked utter havoc through large parts of Iraq during the ISIS campaign. I mean, as long as the defense industry and the Pentagon have such influence over the United States Congress that they can get more money than they even ask for, suggests to me that if there's going to be a major change, it's going to be very slow and that it's going to be very tough to kind of turn that ship of ship of, I don't know, of defense around. And if you have such a large, you know, Pentagon budget, such a tiny State Department budget by comparison, you can't really change very much in the absence of uh, leadership that feels it has a really strong mandate. And it's very clear that uh, Biden doesn't have that, that mandate, even if he may be inclined to change things in fundamental ways, for which I think the evidence is quite mixed. I mean, I think he does want to get out of the Middle East. I think he does want to avoid a war with, with Iran. Uh, and, and maybe he'll succeed in that. And maybe that's the best we can hope for. But the, the other side of that coin, especially with a nearly $800 billion annual defense budget, is they got to find enemies that they can, say, pose a realistic threat to the United States in order to justify that money. And that's, you know, that has real foreign policy consequences in and of itself. I, I think you just demolished my uh, previous optimism. I'm well, I mean, I, I it's really important for people to feel optimistic and that they can change things. So, I mean, you know, we thought 
in the late 1960s, we could end the war in Vietnam, but it dragged on for like four years after, after you know, they ended the draft. And that was a very smart thing to do. Um, so I don't know. Uh, I, I would like to be optimistic and I encourage others to be optimistic, but they also have to be somewhat realistic. Last thing here, I was wondering if you have any um, thoughts, and I, I know you've been away from a lot of this stuff, but I was wondering if you had any thoughts on uh, the, the latest round of negotiations uh, with regards to the JCPOA. It seems like things are not going well right now. I, I don't know. Are they, um, they just finished their meeting, and some there was some people who said there was some progress made in Iran, you know, reconnected the cameras or replaced the cameras. I don't know. I, I mean, I, you know, you should really talk to someone who's following the negotiations intensively. I think at this point, Iran is going for a nuclear weapons capability. I don't think, uh, you know, all the evidence suggests that they're not going for a bomb, but I think they want that, that option. Mm -hmm. And after Trump withdrew from from uh, from the JCPOA, they they I think concluded that that was that was the way to go because yeah, you can't I was, trust the United States. I was just going to say really quickly. I mean, it's it's kind of ironic because I I think you know the deal actually would have you know kept that from happening, but it, it seems like they are pursuing nuclear weapons now. Whereas if we would have kept the deal, maybe we would be in a very different scenario now. Oh, absolutely. I mean, the people who now say that, I mean, there's a Yiddish expression called chutzpah. I'm sure you've heard it before, but I mean, that groups like the Foundation for Defense of Democracy and other groups that whose worldview coincides with the, the Likudists, you know, are now saying, oh, the reason they're so close is because Biden isn't fully enforcing maximum pressure, which is only partly true because Biden hasn't really made much in the way of concessions at all. So we're still in a kind of maximum pressure mode. And to blame this on Biden and to somehow say, you know, Trump's maximum pressure was working really well is so ludicrous that the only word you can think of is it's chutzpah for them to, to make that argument. Well, Jim Loeb, I want to thank you for coming on Parallax News. I know you don't do as many uh, interviews anymore. And I, I know, uh, you know, I never did. Pieces, well, that's, I, I know your pieces are uh, a little bit more sparse these days. I just want to thank you for Much taking some time out of your day and speaking with me. I really appreciate it. I've always appreciated your work and it means so much that you could speak with me. Sure. It was a pleasure. Thanks. Hey, Parallax News listeners. Before we continue the show, I've got a movie that I want to tell you about. Check out the film Tremel by Christopher Jason Bell, available on the Slam Dance YouTube channel. The film follows Dale as he lives a solitary life in a small town, his only outlet being conversations with the local pharmacist Muhammad. As time passes, Dale slowly begins to reveal more of his life and history to Muhammad. Lauded for its empathy, Tremel highlights the forgotten community member in a time when there is no community, and examines what happens when someone's only human connection is a service worker. You can watch over at slamdance.com slash watch 
slash Tremel, or at youtube.com slash slamdance. Check it out, folks. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Jim Loeb. Be sure to keep up with his contributions at the Quincy Institute's responsible statecraft publication. Shout out to our great friend of the show, Kelly Vlahos, who serves as the editorial director at Responsible Statecraft. She is doing some amazing work there that I hope all my listeners are very familiar with. And if you're not, you need to rectify that. Next up, we have Stephen Semler of the Security Policy Reform Institute to discuss the whopping $778 billion Pentagon budget that was passed by Congress last week when, incidentally, this was recorded. So, without any further ado, let's get to the conversation with Stephen Semler of the Security Policy Reform Institute. Welcome to Parallax Views, a guest that I only recently became aware of, but hope to talk to a lot more in the future. Uh, We share an interest in the issues of U.S. foreign policy and maybe the need to reform uh, how we think about foreign policy and also national security. Stephen Semler of SPRY, or the Security Policy Reform Institute, how are you doing today? Pretty good, man. Good to be with you. Thanks. So for my listeners that may be unfamiliar as I was, and I I wish I would have known uh, about Spry earlier, but for people that may be unfamiliar, tell us a little bit about Spry or the uh, Security Policy Reform Institute. Spry is basically an experiment that uh, me and a couple of my friends from grad school started to change the way that foreign policy knowledge production is um, is basically uh, used and produced. So a lot of times that think tanks are funded by massive corporations um, in the foreign policy space, it's not unusual to have big banks and also weapons manufacturers funding uh, different research at different institutions. So we wanted to create a grassroots funded model. Hasn't uh, still in the startup phases, I guess, um, but as time progresses, the the amount of research that uh, we've done that I think has had good meaning um, has uh, progressed nicely. And I also write uh, as a spinoff, the Speaking Security Newsletter, um, which basically just adds usually budgetary context to uh, whatever foreign policy discussions are uh, are occupying people's time. Well, we're going to be talking a lot about budgets, but uh, first, how did you uh, get involved in this topic initially? I mean, I think it had my life... Uh, gone a bit differently or had I made different choices at different times, I think it would have ended up in medicine or law. But I would like to think that I would be fighting for working class interests uh, if I had taken those routes either and for Medicare for all or Green New Deal or something like that. So I had sort of values in line uh, with aligning some sort of U.S. policy with working class interests. It just happened to be foreign policy. Just um, in undergrad, I had a few good professors that kind of uh, oriented my focus towards the international space. And then Soon enough, I was in uh, Beirut working in the humanitarian sector. So uh, since then, uh, I've been focusing on my writing and starting up this think tank. So then the reason I wanted to have you on is we have this new defense budget now uh, just passed in Congress. Uh, It's more 
than I believe what was proposed with the Biden Build Back Better Act. Uh, it's whew, uh, what seven hundred fifty billion uh, or so dollars. So, what are we to make of this? I mean, it, it seems like an insane amount when you put it into context. Right, and seven hundred fifty-three is what Biden um, initially initially proposed, but then Congress went ahead and added twenty-five billion of their own. So now it's at seven hundred seventy-eight billion. It just passed the Senate um, this week, passed the House the, the week before, um, and it's four and a half times the size of the annual cost of Biden's Build Back Better Act. So what's 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 crazy is that you hear people yelling about inflation, especially in Congress, about uh, whatever impact the Build Back Better Act has, but you don't hear it with the military budget, despite it being, you know, four four and a half times larger. And uh, my apologies for mixing that up. Uh, that. You know, I, I said 753 billion, but it's actually more than that. So, well, no worries. The good thing about looking at military spending is that the numbers are so large, you can be off by 10 or 20 billion and you're still more or less correct. So, it's all good. So, where does all this Pentagon uh, money go? Where, where does this defense budget go? Not to our troops. Um, there is a certain amount that goes to our troops, but most of it. Uh, I'd characterize as a redistribution of wealth from the public to private sector. Again, these are public funds um, that funds the Pentagon budget. And since 2001, on average, 54% of Pentagon spending has gone to the private sector through contracts. And these contracts do are for everything from you know making troops lunch to you know F-35, really expensive aircraft. Um, but in the large part, it is a redistribution of wealth, despite how many people decry it as such. And once it goes into the private sector from the public, basically what we're looking at is a state-run economy that you know employs a hell of a lot of people, uh, millions in fact. And it's just used for, in my opinion, the wrong purposes, or at least we should have a state-run economy working in other sectors as well. How does this potentially cut into... Uh, Biden's promises on things like climate and uh, other issues of import in the United States political arena right now. We can take a look at climate right now. um, The main bill that Biden passed that affects climate is the infrastructure bill. Uh, Originally started out at 2.25 trillion. um, And then over time, Biden negotiated 76% of it away. So the amount that actually passed last month or two months ago or whatever it was, is 550 billion over five years. Now, a chunk of that goes to climate, which is good, and it brings down uh, CO2 emissions in the United States, a sizable amount, um, at least getting us headed in the right direction to the goals that he expressed at the recent climate conference. The problem is um, emissions related to the military that come from the military are excluded from climate agreements um, and therefore were excluded from Biden's estimate on uh, what goal he wanted to reach. So if you factor military emissions in, it negates all progress made by the infrastructure bill on climate. So that's one, that's just one way that, um, you know, military spending and and climate spending kind of uh, intersect. So the issue of the military and how it contributes to uh, the problems we face with climate change. I feel like that hasn't gotten enough coverage. I've seen you talk about it, and I know Abby Martin has a documentary coming out about it. What What are the flashpoints that people need to understand with that issue? Uh, 
I think the one thing, I mean, there's several points of view uh, or several aspects of this conversation that I think need highlighting. So thank you for your question. I think one thing is that oftentimes with ambitious climate agendas, we're told that there's no money to pay for it. There's two things wrong with that statement that we don't have money to pay for climate. The first is that it's the climate and it's the planet and there must be funds made available and there are funds to spend. You can look at every war since Vietnam. None of those wars have been paid for, quote unquote, paid for with a corresponding tax increase that we're told that climate programs need to have. The second problem is that we're already paying for it. Um, we're just obligating those public funds towards uh, military spending instead of climate spending. So right now, um, if you compare the, the military budget versus the amount of climate funding that Biden will have enacted in this first year, we're looking at 778 billion to about 30 billion or 40 billion at most for climate. And I feel like we have a very similar story when it comes to healthcare. I mean, we're we're constantly told, nope, can't do Medicare for all or anything like that or on that level of, of spending, but we can definitely keep spending money on the Pentagon. That's right. That's right. And one of the things that bothers me is that, you know, Right now, the U.S. government, like with Medicare for all, the U.S. government would be in a tremendous position of leverage for drug manufacturers to negotiate prices down. And that happens um, with when the, when the Department of Defense is looking to buy weapons. They negotiate the prices down. They buy in bulk. Everything that uh, would suit us really, really well in the, far, in like the uh, healthcare and, and pharmaceutical world, but we're deploying those um, that leverage in such a limited sense that only affects a very few amount of people, either who are employed in the military industrial complex or profit in the military industrial complex. Now, with regards to uh, the Build Back Better bill, do you think there was a problem with uh, trying to pass, I mean, it, it was the infrastructure and the military budget bills first. Do you think going for that first was uh, not the best move for Biden and Democrats to make? You know, initially, Biden was campaigning on around $7 trillion over 10 years for climate infrastructure, health, all the, all the stuff that was in the infrastructure and the Build Back Better Act. Initially, it was supposed to be one bill. Then Biden divided it into two. Now, at this point, all hope was not lost because the House was effectively holding hostage the infrastructure bill until the Senate passed the Build Back Better bill to ensure that you get both the benefits from the uh, Build Back Better and also the kind of soft infrastructure health programs that were in the Build Back Better Act. The problem is the House passed the infrastructure bill and just sort of hoped the Senate would. Now it's clear that the Senate's not going to move with Build Back Better. I think Democratic leadership announced uh, this week or even just a few hours prior to this conversation that um, they'd be shelving Build Back Better, uh, at least for the bit, just putting the thing on ice. And so in the same way that Democrats gave up their leverage with Build Back Better by passing infrastructure, they also could have found a way to hold hostage the military budget. We came close last year when Senator Sanders and, and several Democrats and even some Republicans were refusing to allow a vote on military spending in the Senate until there was a vote on $2,000 checks. Now, that strategy worked for about a week until Democratic uh, leadership caved particularly Chuck Schumer caved, and they allowed the Pentagon budget to come to a vote. The vote on the $2,000 checks never came. We So we were stuck with $600 checks. And then Democrats obviously never followed through on the $2,000 checks. So even though the military budget passes overwhelmingly with a bipartisan majority, 
there's opportunities that exist to use it as leverage to get social spending passed. And I know that doesn't appeal to everyone as a strategy, but we have to think of what's realistic at this time. The problem is Biden, it would have been a lot easier had there been a president in office who said, look, I'm not going to sign the Pentagon budget until uh, we pass Build Back Better or voting rights or whatever. But instead, Biden didn't condition it on anything. Therefore, we're at where we're at with just a massive military budget and neither voting rights or Build Back Better back uh, acted. Build Back Better act enacted. So with this $778 billion Pentagon budget, and I said that real slow just because it's it's mind, it's a mind-boggling amount of uh, moolah. This passed in the Senate with, I mean, it was 89 to 10. Uh, so, I mean, that's wild. 89 voting yay, uh, 10 voting nay. Uh, who are some of the big names that were in favor of this massive Pentagon budget? I, I take it a lot of them are the usual suspects like Manchin, right? Yeah, Manchin, Cinema, which is ironic given how much they've complained about federal spending over the last, uh, over the last uh, several months with, with infrastructure and uh, the Reconciliation or Build Back Better Act. All leadership, McConnell, Schumer voted for it as well. There was... Um, the usual suspects were voting against it too. Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, Ed Markey, Jeff Merkley, and on the Republican side, Rand Paul and Mike Lee. Um, so there was a contingent of the usual suspects in terms of either uh, more left-leaning or more uh, libertarian-leaning, I guess, for Rand Paul and Mike Lee. But overall, I mean, it was a, it was a broad consensus that voted in, in, in favor of this thing when public polling suggests that it shouldn't have passed, you know, the Senate shouldn't, should have rejected a $37 it's billion. It's a similar, not, not to interrupt you, but it's a similar story with the uh, the Saudi arms deal. This, all, all the data I've seen indicates that American voters uh, didn't want that arms sale to go through. Uh, and yet, you know, the attempt to block it by Bernie Sanders and, and Rand Paul, and as we put it, the usual suspects, their attempt to block it got shot down by a bipartisan majority. And yet it, it really went against what people seem to want, what the voters seem to want, the citizens. Exactly. And that's a perfect example, too. The bill failed that would have blocked the arms sale by a two to one margin. But public polling, two people for every one person in the U.S. public wanted the sale to fail or be blocked. So it's kind of a reversal. So that's where I think, you know, the money in politics comes in, um, that there's a real difference here, not just in terms of right and left, but in terms of you know, up and down in terms of class, in terms of, you know, you know, elite consensus in Congress versus the majority will outside of Congress. Now, one thing I always get when talking about this subject is, uh, and I, I think I mentioned this to you before we uh, decided to record this, I always get the argument of, well, how, how will America defend itself against its foreign adversaries if we don't have this defense budget there's always it's it's interesting there's always a state of exception when it comes to spending in a lot of people's minds um oh spending bad except when it's on the pentagon um so how do you respond to those kinds of arguments typically um i usually just say what are the main threats that affect your life is it is it china or is it the fact that you don't have health care, you know, so that's sort of debate on what security actually is and, and how to buy, quote unquote, security or quote unquote, buy security. Another reason is just to have some sort of 
you know, perspective on why China and why Russia and why international terrorism is, is a threat, not just because of how it's amplified in the media, but also the U.S. role in it. You know, um, a Chinese military budget, which is now not nearly as large as the, as the American military budget, but definitely sizable, that didn't fall out of the sky. And I'm not sort of exonerating any sort of decisions by Chinese leadership at all, but it's hard to rule out the impact of the U.S. rapidly scaling up its own military arsenal, Dukes included, um, after withdrawing from Afghanistan. And it's not surprising to see, you know, um, China increasing its military budget as well. So we're basically, you know, real or imagined threats, you know, both exist or both are disseminated. But for the real stuff, we have to control what we can control and, and say, okay, this spending a ton on the Pentagon is supposed to, or we say it increases our security, but if it causes Russia and China to spend more on their versions of the Pentagon and their nuclear arsenal and their armed forces, then what exactly are we doing here? So we need to think our, our strategy as well as our spending priorities. I think the other thing we always get is, uh, well, you know, this creates jobs. Uh, how do you sort of tackle that one? Yeah, I say, yeah. I mean, that, isn't that great having, you know, uh, at least uh, the government, you know, paying for a jobs program like that. Um, the problem is that in the quickest way to diffuse that argument is that those people are right. It does, it does, you know, um, create jobs, but immediately once they sort of admit, uh, once they, the reason why the jobs argument, in my opinion, has increased in popularity is because the traditional national security, uh, you know, analytical reasons have fallen out of favor. The war on terror was obviously a disaster. Um, it's clear that uh, the Biden administration following the Trump administration's lead is starting that um, a cold war with Russia and China. Um, so these are very bad decisions. I think the jobs argument is one that, that uh, you know, failed national security analysts and officials sort of lean on to co-opt uh, left and liberal people. But even if you just look at the jobs argument for what it is, if you're interested in creating jobs, spending it on the military or spending public funds on the military is the worst way to do it. For example, you know, say for the same amount of money, um, healthcare creates twice as many jobs as investments in the military. For the climate, it's like uh, 50 or 75%, also just something crazy. And then education is, is way out there. It's like two and a half, um, uh, you know, per dollar invested uh, in terms of jobs. So if, if we're interested in creating jobs and, in, and creating jobs that, you know, actually create something useful as opposed to things that just explode, uh, we'd be far better off uh, investing in manufacturing, clean energy, education, uh, climate, et cetera. It gets really crazy when you think about uh, all these contracts that are given out to the sort of lords of war, like Lockheed Martin, uh, when it comes to F-35 jets that, uh, as you put it, uh, we really don't need and they largely don't work. Uh, for me, the F-35 uh, boondoggle, as I call it, should be you know a massive news story. Yeah, and I don't know. It's I don't know why it isn't. I mean, it, it's maybe it just because it's just failure after failure, and then you know, just sort of Congress just you know exudes all accountability by continuing to vote for it. That's another example where it's said that it passes only because of its jobs. But again, I mean, it'd be far more beneficial to create something, you know, even if you're sticking with military spending, something that works and not something that has you know less than ten percent uh, full mission capable rate as the F thirty five does. But again, I mean. It spread its assets out. Lockheed has to build this thing to, 
quote unquote, touch as many congressional districts as possible. But it just it's it's doubly upsetting because it's not just a waste of money, but it's also, you know, an investment that could go towards creating more jobs to create things that are actually useful uh, towards threats that we actually face, like climate change and, and just an utter, uh, utterly collapsing healthcare system. And then there's also the issue of, uh, you know, the CEO pay at these um, weapons firms is really ridiculous. And I notice you have at least a few articles on the top military contractors and how much they paid their CEOs on average. Uh, could you speak to that issue a little bit? Yeah. One of the things that, you know, I really like um, when people talk about CEO salaries because it invokes sort of a, a class politics dynamic to um, it, it, it's just an easy way to express like a class dynamic in a way that really gets people's attention because it's so infuriating. And, you know, military contractors aren't exempt from this either. I mean, uh, you know, I think the the CEO pay disparity isn't as nearly as large as it is, you know, McDonald's or anything because um, there's so many people with higher education and, and sort of very in-demand jobs uh, in the military industrial complex. Uh, now, the problem is, and what makes it somewhat worse is that if you look at Lockheed's CEO salary, which was I think 30 million in 2020 or 2019, or, or recently it was 30 million total pay was uh, at Lockheed, um, that's not nearly as much as you know Elon Musk's was or maybe the Walmart CEO. But the difference is that 84% of Lockheed's revenue that same year came from the federal government through contracts. So it's really kind of a C exorbitant CEO salary, which is, which is uh, irritating enough combined with the fact that it's federally subsidized, which is just, you know, it's enough to put, make you want to put your head through the wall. Yeah, it's interesting. I noticed that both of us uh, took note of, and, and I'll have to explain it to my listeners, but there was a uh, Dash for Cash event um, in South Dakota recently where you had teachers uh, getting on their knees and fighting for $1 bills that they can use for classroom supplies. And, you know, people just watch, apparently. It's something out of a dystopian nightmare. Uh, and, and what gets me about it is, you know, we apparently don't have money to fund our education system, but we have all this money uh, to put into the Pentagon budget. That event you're talking about with the teachers, uh, you know, Dash for Cash event at the hockey game was sort of one of those things that local and national media sources do as feel good stories, but just totally, just, they totally, you know, just totally miss the plot on what they're, what exactly they're showing. So it is, it is, you know, incredibly frustrating that, you know, these people who are heralded as, you know, frontline workers and heroes, you know, not, you know, a year ago are now kind of, you know, nothing's changed as a result of the pandemic and them, you know, risking their lives basically in the Biden administration's rush to reopen schools. Um, so it is, it, is, it is really frustrating to see how little's changed in that regard and how little's changed um, with military spending as well. And these CEOs, they're on average, I think it's what, uh, 21.8 million uh, was last year was the average. And, you know, if you think about it, it's, it's really wild. How many weapons contractors, for people that don't know, weapons companies, how many really are there that are in this game? It's a very small number. Yeah, I mean, if you count like subcontractors, um, you know, you know, contractors get awarded a contract, and then they're the primary, and then they have you know secondary and and 
they award subprimes themselves. So really, if you sketch it all out, it's like 50,000 contractors. But as far as, you know, primary awards, you know, about a third of them just go to five companies, uh, Lockheed Martin, Raytheon, Boeing, General Dynamics, and Northrop Grumman. They eat uh, close to 30%, I think. I think the actual number is like 27 or 28%, so close to a third. So, you know, in 2001, these five companies who were still, you know, the top five then, um, received almost 50 billion, I think 49 billion in contract awards. But in 2020, it was 168 billion. So you see the war on terror's effect. And that's just the pro- that's not just the product of increased military spending, even though, it, you know, that's largely the story here, but also the fact that these companies just don't stop eating each other, that there is a massive consolidation. So like um, in 2001, I think if you or if you trace back the top five contractors now to 2001, you would end up with like 100 or something. Um, that's just how much they've consolidated in this sort of pseudo or state-run economy that's uh, had this corporate injection in it. So whose palms are getting greased, so to speak, to sort of keep this going? You know, what's, what's keeping this massive defense budget up when most of the American people seem to be increasingly against it in, in, in some ways? I mean, I, I think people are fed up with the forever wars. So why, why do we have our politicians still uh, voting in favor of these massive budgets for the Pentagon? I think like one thing that people miss is that, you know, when we talk about the military industrial complex and what's needed to basically defund it, or at least reprogram the funds, is that it doesn't require the same amount of work that would be required to you know, stage a boycott of Amazon, which has you know, millions of customers. Military contractors really have, you know, 430 something in the house and 100 senators. Their, their customer is the Congress because the Congress holds the purse strings. They're the ones who set the top line military budget and the programs that it funds, and therefore the equipment and services that uh, contractors buy. So as their main customers who are supposed to be representing, you know, ordinary people who don't have, uh, who don't get benefits from it, military contractors really have to focus on doing pretty much everything they can to keep their customers in check and willing to keep on buying. And that can be from uh, spending on lobbying, campaign contributions, making sure that Congress doesn't pass any act that would prohibit them from owning stock. It comes from funding think tanks to produce research that uh, members of Congress and their staffs read to funding the the morning newsletters like The Hill and Politico that uh, are delivered to every member office in the morning. Uh, military contractors fund that too, or a good chunk of those uh, of those publications related to foreign policy. So really, there's just an immense focus on um, keeping the customers happy. It just that's sort of a, a, a signal of its strength, but also its weakness that, you know, if, if even half those customers go away, then, you know, the chick is up, they're ruined. So a question that came up recently from a listener of my show is, what can we really do to see reform in this area? Because there's, I think at the end of the day, it's, it's hard to even have this discussion because I think for people like us, you know, we're looking at this saying, this is insane. Why are we even talking about this? We should be uh, spending money on things like education, healthcare, climate change. Why does everything have to go? Uh, or, you know, such a massive amount have to go to the Pentagon. And I, I know some people that have become very, very, uh, I would just say pessimistic that feel like 
how are we going to change this? It seems like it's so entrenched at this point, uh, this sort of military industrial complex nightmare that we live in. How do we get the necessary reforms through? Uh, I think the first step is just to not get, you know, become cynical about it because cynicism, I think, engendering it is a ruling class strategy just to get people politically disengaged. Uh, sorry, there's wildlife crawling out this room, but um, yeah, I think that's that's really the first step. And and just to recognize that, yeah, like it is intimidating, but as I just said, there's only a limited number of customers here that need convincing. And while you know, uh, military contractors have bundles of cash, it's like confronting every major industry. They have you know basically a lot of money to hold out in any protracted labor dispute. They have the law on their side because they spent money on lobbying and campaign contributions to alter it in their favor. Um, but at the end of the day, they just don't have the people power that could be you know, mobilized to get members of Congress to oppose this uh, effectively state-run system. So it's a powerful system. Uh, there's a lot of money involved, but it's so centralized that it makes for kind of an easy target. Um, but there has to be a recognition that it's, um, the anti-war movement isn't large enough on its own. Um, so there has to be a serious coalition um, with people who are protesting police brutality, uh, given how the Pentagon's collected are uh, connected to police militarization and also climate, too. Um, we need to, uh, as, as anti-war and anti-imperialists, we need to connect the climate movement because there's, there's a movement that has uh, you know, formidable ground game, as does um, you know, uh, people who are looking to uh, make sure the criminal justice system isn't as uh, cruel, particularly to uh, brown and black communities. Yeah, and I mean, so much of it all connects, right? I mean, and I think that's what you're getting at. I mean, if, if you're concerned about issues like Palantir and surveillance technology, a lot of that can connect back to uh, military spending and, and Department of Defense spending. Everything is sort of connected, and we really need to take a holistic approach if we want to see change. I guess before closing out here, in closing, what do you hope that listeners get out of the conversation we've had uh, in the last 30 or so minutes and how can they support your work? I think that I hope they just have an appreciation for independent media, like what you're doing for the show. It's not like I'm invited on, you know, big time cable networks who, you know, rarely cover this type of thing. Um, but I think, the, I think the one thing is just to, you know, follow the money and uh, hopefully they were encouraged to, uh, to explore a little bit more about the military industrial complex and realizes and realize, you know, uh, that there are tools out there to inform their advocacy. And I hope some of, some of the work that I do, you know, encourages advocacy as well. Um, anything from, you know, uh, you know, the, the typical stuff like, you know, writing your congressman or congresswoman to actually being, um, involved in sort of direct action and, and other advocacy campaigns that are designed to, uh, convert the war economy to, uh, a green economy or a healthcare economy or something like that. So I just hope that there's, you know, uh, I hope that didn't make anyone cynical by the massive numbers that we were tossing around, but I hope just kind of informed and uh, enraged the, the listeners in uh, a productive way. And how can my listeners keep up with your work? You can find me on Twitter um, at, at Stephen Semler, S-T-E-P-H-E-N-S-E-M-L-E-R. And you can find me on Substack uh, under the same name, or you can search the name of it, Speaking Security. And from there, you'll be redirected to my think tank, Spry, and pretty much anything else you need. Thank you again, Stephen Semler. My pleasure. Thanks.
Well, that does it for this edition of Parallax Views. I hope you enjoyed my conversations with Jim Loeb and also Stephen Semler of the Security Policy Reform Institute. As always, if you appreciate the work here I do at Parallax Views, please, please, please consider supporting me on Patreon at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. That's patreon.com slash parallaxviews. There's a $1, $5, $10, $15, and even a $100 tier if you want to help this show keep going, you can contribute at any of those tiers. Any amount will help. And of course, at the $10 tier and above, you get a producer's credit shout out. So producer's credit shout outs to Mark, Arlen, Spartacus, Gunner, Ed, Gratz, James, Mickey, Brian, The Warner, The 42 Group, Nick, Emilia, Chase, Chris, Ork, Black Tuna, Nathan, David, Holland, Martin, Stu, Jeffrey, Thomas and Fabian. If you'd like your very own producer's credit on each and every edition of Parallax Views, consider joining those listeners and supporting me at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. That's patreon.com slash parallaxviews at, of course, the $10 tier or above. And with that being said... Until next time... You've been listening to Parallax Views with Parallax Views to Parallax Views with The way out is not simply to say don't do it, just to prohibit. If nothing else, if we don't do it, others will be doing it like right. So, you know, we have to confront the problem. But no, basically, basically, I'm, I know of the great anxiety problems, new forms of control, but it's also new forms of freedom. This is why I always emphasize that uh, uh, internet and all this new digital stuff, it's a very ambiguous phenomenon, but it's the field of struggle. New forms of enslavement, but at the same time, new incredible forms of freedom. We have to accept the fight with no nostalgia for old, allegedly more authentic communities or whatever. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid.